Thank you, Pastor Dave, for letting me come. A lot has changed since the last time we hung out, this whole COVID thing, the Rona, as we call it in my home. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how I can think back to when the, the intensity or the seriousness of the situation started to kind of hit me. We were, it was spring break. Uh, we were hearing news because uh, we were on, at the coast for spring break. And so we were hearing news about possible uh, school being, the spring break being extended, which my kids were very excited about and in favor of. And we were hearing about possible shutdowns, uh, looking at shelter in place and, and trying to wrestle with all what all that meant and what the implications would be of that. And I remember it it really hit home when... I mean, this was the point. This was, it was like, okay, maybe, maybe. And then when this happened, I was like, okay, this is serious. And that's when there was a run on toilet paper and it was looking like, it, we may not, we, the world may run out of it. And it was like, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, there, if you run like stockpiling toilet paper and we're at the beach and so looking at, okay, what are our options? Uh, there's not a lot of large leafy plants around and so... This is a big deal. We need to figure this out quick, people. And so I remember things were changing. Things were changing rapidly. And we weren't sure how long. We were just, I remember thinking, man, I can't wait till we just get back to normal. Can't wait till we'll just hunker down, we'll get through this, and then things will just go, and people will come to their senses. Things will just calm down, and it'll be okay. And then it went on for weeks. And then a month went by, and then another month. And they're like, Oh, yeah, they may be canceling baseball. They may be canceling college football. They may be, you know, we may not be able to go back to school. And I, I was like, what in the world? This is crazy talk. It's just, I cannot believe it. And we're still in the midst of it. And you're starting to, to wonder if you're, along with me, what, how is this changing things forever? Like, are there things that are happening now that are going to change the way we move forward. I remember the changes that 9-11 brought with the way you travel. All of a sudden, the TSA was invented, and you couldn't just go to the gate and greet your loved ones as they got off the plane. Like, it forever changed. And so, we don't know yet what this all means. And I remember as things started to become more and more restricted, and privileges were... were kind of taken away and, and the ability to go out, uh, the ability to shop and stand in the HEV produce aisle and clear your throat and not everyone look at you going, what? You got it. But things started to change. And I remember as we're navigating this and a couple months in, starting to go, what, what's this all about? In my heart, I was wondering, okay, they've taken away so many of the things that I enjoy. And I, I can't just go do them. And so everything's been disrupted. What's it all about? Why do we keep waking up every day? Why do we, you know, go over to the next room and go to work? Or go over to the next room and go to school? Or when everything is so upended, it causes us, I think, to ask questions. What's the whole point of all this? Why do we go through this rhythmic kind of cycle of life? And... When you, when you start to go around and you ask, the, in the, the world will oftentimes respond with, ultimately it boils down to either happiness or love or relationship of some kind. Right? That, that's the meaning of life. 
As Christians, the answer that, that we often summarize it with is, well, it's God's glory. Everything, the meaning of life, the meaning of why we get up, why we do what we do is because of God's glory. And while that is absolutely right, it's sometimes really vague. What does that mean? I remember riding in the car with my nephew. He was about six years old. And the third day song, Show Me Your Glory, was on. I had the, the CD in. And you guys know what a CD is? Okay, I don't know, maybe not. And I remember thinking, uh, just rocking out to the song. And the song ends and my nephew says, Uncle Chad, what's a glory? And I was like, huh, how do I explain to a six, so a six-year-old can understand this thing called glory. And, it, and it's something that we should be able to. We, it, it, throughout the scriptures, there's no doubt God's zeal for his own glory drips from the pages. So this is something that we should be able to go, oh yeah, this is what it is. But yet it's sometimes very elusive. How do we articulate in a way that's satisfying what that means? And how does that somehow give meaning to why we exist? And I think we find that in one particular passage in John chapter 17. This is a moment where Jesus is, is about to, he's praying as he's about to go and initiate all of those events that we know as the torture, uh, the inquisition that he experiences. Eventually he'll go to the cross and then eventually the resurrection. But right before all of that is initiated, there's this moment of prayer that he has. And his disciples are obviously present. And he's, the key thing to note about this prayer is he knows what's about to happen. He's aware of it. It'd be one thing if he didn't, but he knows what's about to go down. And so as he prays, these are the last things that he's saying in front of his disciples. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a moment where you, and maybe this is for parents, you've thought, okay, if, if I, there's only one thing I could tell my kids, if there's only one thing I could leave them with, it would be fill in the blank. Whatever that is, is going to be at closest to your heart, of utmost importance, something you want to say so simply and clearly that they never forget it. And that's something that we have here. In John 17, he knows what's next. And so what he prays to the Father is absolutely profound for us and a huge benefit. So let's turn to John 17. Now it's, we're going to read the whole prayer. It's going to be up there. And I'm going to stop uh, every once in a while and, and kind of identify some things. So here we are, John 17, chapter, or chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So here in this first section, as he begins to appeal to the Father, he makes a request. 
And this request is what kind of drives the rest of this prayer. He says in verse, the end of verse 1, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And then he repeats it similar. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So his request, as he goes to the Father, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. So then in this next section, we have the fulfillment. Okay, here's the request. And now this is what it looks like for that to be fulfilled. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Notice here the fulfillment. All of a sudden, this group of people shows up on the scene and comes to the forefront in his prayer. Specifically, the disciples. His followers at that time. And his request, remember, is, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And then he says about these people that have come to the forefront that are heavy on his heart, he says, I'm glorified in them. The request is, Father, glorify me, and I'm glorified in them. Therefore, there's something about the Father and the Son and these people that he's given him that then they're glorified. The Father and Son are glorified in them, these people. And then we move to the last section. And this is the result if he's made this request and it's fulfilled in them, that he's glorified in them, the result of this request being fulfilled is this. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Did you catch that? He's praying for us. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the night he was betrayed, prayed for you. You were on his heart. He knows you. And he was praying for you. 
He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. That's how he ends his prayer. Unity. Community. You know, it's interesting about this passage. We talked about what does glory mean. And in, in the Gospel of John, glory is mentioned a few times. But in John 17, it explodes. This word doxa explodes on the page in just this particular chapter. So on the heart of Jesus, before he goes to the Father, before he accomplishes what he's been sent to accomplish, what's heavy on his heart, what he wants the disciples to know, his people to know, is something about their purpose, why they exist, and it has to do with glory. We know that, right? But what does that mean? And there's, there's something in the, in the context of this prayer specifically that I think just opens the door for our understanding. See, there's a criteria there's two things that are true of this glory that, that we see here. The first one is that in verse 5, it's something that has already, he already had before creation. In verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That's key. Glory is something that existed prior to us or prior to anything in creation. God didn't create us out of a lack because he was somehow lacking some relational fulfillment or he was lonely or he needed something else. He didn't create us because he was missing something. This glory is something he had before we were around or anything else was around. It's also something that he can share with humans. We see in verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory you have given me. I have given them the glory you have given me. So it's something that existed before creation, and it's something that he can give away. And that's kind of an awkward feeling too, because as Christians we know we're not to glorify ourselves. We're supposed to glorify God. But somehow Christ has given this glory to us. And so what does that mean? Well, there's three things here that meet the criteria of what glory is described as. The things that are true of glory, that it preexisted creation, and that it's something Christ shares with us. There's three things here that he prays for and that he mentions. The first one is that Jesus knows the Father. Jesus knows the Father before the world began, and the Father knows Jesus. And now he says, especially in verse 26, I have made you known to them. And now we know the Father. Jesus knew the Father and the Father knew the Son and now we know the Father. 
The second thing, the Father has loved the Son before the foundations of the earth. And the Son has loved the Father. And now we, right, now that love is in us as well. And the third thing, in verse 13, Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that, why does he speak these things? Why does he reveal the love of the Father and the, and the knowing of the Father? I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. The Father enjoyed the Son before the world began. And the Son enjoyed the Father. And now that joy has been shared with us so that His joy is completed in us. So here we have what's happened since before the world began, the Father and the Son have known, loved, and enjoyed each other. And all of those have been shared with us that Christ has revealed to us the Father so we know Him and in knowing Him, we love Him and in loving Him, we enjoy Him. When we think about this reality that the Father and the Son in relationship through the Spirit, if this is true, then that means it's the ultimate backstop of reality. That everything else in our experience or our beliefs has a, a prior cause to it. Something else has caused it. Whether that's uh, family, uh, friends, finances, football. Whatever it is we experience in this world has a prior cause. Something else has caused it and comes before it and is prior to it. But what we have in the triune God and this ultimate community, right? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the perfect community... That there's nothing prior to it. There's nothing that predates it. That that relationship that has, has existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for eternity past is the ultimate backstop of reality. And if that's the case, then everything else in creation finds its creative genius in that alone. That everything else exists and it emanates out of this perfect community known as God. And so that gives meaning to what we do here and now. That gives meaning to everything that we experience. Now that's why throughout COVID-19, when all of a sudden these restrictions started to be imposed, and one of the things we felt was the lack of community. That should be a loss. That should hurt. That should cause frustration because we're designed for community. And when that can't happen in the way that it's supposed to happen, we should feel the loss. We should lament that. And what we have here is Jesus is going to complete what he began as he prays in front of his disciples that they exist to know, love, and enjoy God. And in that, they do that as a community. It will cause the watching world to come to know, love, and enjoy God. To know that Jesus Christ is the one. That he's the one that can fix this broken world. That's, that's the meaning of life. That's why we exist. 
to know, love, and enjoy God. And that in that knowing, loving, and enjoying God, the product is going to be a unity among us. A, a certain community that's going to exist in a way that's different than any other community on the planet. That our existence as a Christian body, as the local church, is supposed to be a kind of community that is drastically different than anything else. It's different than your baseball team. It's different than your, your, the team you work with. It's, it's different than any other community or gathering of people on this planet because it's a spiritual one. It's spiritual. See, right before he prays this, he was teaching. And one of the things that he was teaching his disciples, if you turn over or scroll down in your Bibles to John chapter 14, he's telling them something that's absolutely key to understanding the nature of our community. He says in 14... Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That Christ's own spirit will be sent by the Father to dwell not only among us, but in us. He goes on to say, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost verbatim what he says in John chapter 17, verse 20. The interconnectedness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His people. See, before the beginning of time, what was happening in the triune God, this perfect community. He didn't create us out of a lack. But what was experienced there in perfection, he said, I want to increase the boundaries and draw others into this. And so that's the call on our life, that as we experience community because of God's love for us that fills our hearts and overflows into the lives of the people around us, that as we exist in community, experiencing the love of God and expressing the love of God, it's going to expand the boundaries. And others are going to be called in to experience this. Because Jesus says, I want them to experience this so that the world will know that you sent me. So that. That's big. And it's not something we muster up on our own strength. We don't just go, okay, we got to be a good community, so no fighting. Because I'll tell you how that works in my house. It doesn't. Kids, you're not supposed to fight, so don't fight. It doesn't work that way. We don't have the ability to just muster this up on our own. That's why he sends his spirit. He says, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Later in chapter 16, he says, the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. He says, he comes to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to the Father 
and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged and found wanting. Absolutely. So this is a spiritual community. And if it's a spiritual community, that also is kind of vague. It's like, well, what does that mean? Okay, we're supposed to know, love, and enjoy God, and you've just told us that that's not something we can muster up on our own, but it's because His Spirit dwells within us. Well, what does it look like for a community to exist with the Spirit dwelling in their midst? And Paul, that's when he's writing his letters, emanating out of this teaching of Jesus, we see Paul helping churches, local communities of God, figure out what that means. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he, he talks about this reality that we can somehow quench the Spirit. And if he hadn't said it, I, I probably wouldn't believe that there's somehow we have the ability to limit the power of the, of the Spirit of God. But he says that's the case. The word he uses there is like water on fire. It quenches or, or douses it. And the flame comes to nothing. The heat, the power, the light, everything that's true of a flame comes to nothing. And so, throughout the other teachings of Paul, we understand that the way that we quench the Spirit is through sin, unrepentant sin. And as sin exists in our lives and in the camp, unconfessed, unrepented of, the Spirit of God is limited. So we have the ability to either limit or let loose the power of the Spirit in our midst, in our lives, so that the world may see that Jesus is the one sent from God. Another way that he talks about it, and this is in Galatians, he talks about that we are to be led by the Spirit. Actually, in, uh, yeah, in Galatians he says we are to be led. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit... Right? The, the product of the Spirit in your life and in your midst as a community, because he's saying this to a plural people. He's not writing this to individuals, but a community, a gathered church. He says the fruit of the Spirit in your midst, the product, is going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I get them all? Okay, good. That's, that's going to be the fruit or the product of a community that's, that's led by the Spirit. He goes on to say, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's this picture of a, a community of people that are both animated by the Spirit of God, lifeless otherwise, but if the Spirit is present, they are animated by Him and also aligned with Him. Filled and led by the Spirit. He speaks about the leading of the Spirit in Ephesians. That that leading is when we are filled. He says, but be filled by the Spirit rather than, he's talking about don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's two implications here. If, if, we're, if the meaning of life is that we're to know, love, and enjoy God... Because Christ has sent his spirit to make the, make the Father known to us. Give us an ability to love him and to enjoy him. And that is in our community causing other people to know, love, and enjoy Christ. 
And this is all because the Spirit of God is present with us. And so our community is a spiritual, not purely a natural community, but spiritual. Then I think there's two key implications for community. And that first one is that we would seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives personally and also corporately. That we would seek the fullness. That means that we would identify if there are ways in which there is sin in our life or in our community that is limiting or quenching the Spirit of God moving. We have an absolute obligation to confess those things because He has come to convict us of sin so that we can confess, repent, and walk with Christ. The second thing is that we would seek to be led by Him. That we would allow the Spirit as He prompts and leads and reveals things in His Word, convicts us of things that we ought to do and say, then, then we need to be led by that, and meaning we submit to his leadership. And also that we would be filled, that we would be filled by the Spirit producing the fruit. It's interesting that there's a second implication I think follows. If we're seeking the fullness of the Spirit of God in our lives personally and as a, as a corporate family, then we must bear with one another in love. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. What does worthy here mean? But in accordance with or or that it lines up with the calling. You've been called by Christ, redeemed and reconciled to God the Father. Therefore, live in a way that, that lines up with that. That makes sense. If that's true of you, then live a life that, that reflects that. He says, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we maintain the unity of the Spirit through a bond of peaceful living with one another, which requires humility, which requires patience, and requires bearing with one another in love. That means... I don't put my agenda first. It's last. It means I pursue the benefit of others in my church family before my own. It means I am second and not first. I think there's a couple other implications from that. And that is sometimes what makes these challenging, especially this bearing with one another in love, is that we think people are the enemy. And we lose track of the fact that, no, the enemy is the enemy. People are not the enemy. Right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. People aren't the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Another component of this is that we need to pick our battles. We need to fight the right battles. And we need to fight them together, not against each other. We need to realize that in a lot of ways, churches don't find great friction or split in deep doctrinal truths. It's usually the tertiary things. 
It's not the majors. It's usually the minors. And so we have to pick our battles. One of the battles that we need to, to fight is we need to, to fight sin, and that happens together. Because that's what's going to limit the Spirit's ability to work through us to a watching world. So it's not about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. It's not about masks or no masks. Those aren't the battles we fight. We put others first. We're second. And it's because the Spirit of the living God has poured His love into our hearts. And we know who we are in Christ. There's an example in the scriptures that I always find powerful. It's, it's the difference between two communities. Because unity is something that's talked about a lot. It's not just a Christian idea. It's, it's all over the world. There's this idea of unity, especially with some of the political and, and other social things that are happening in our world today. This idea of unity and, and being one and getting along and these kind of things. But unity isn't neutral. Because when humans apply their hands to anything, whether that's being united or what, it can either be for good or evil. It can be for the bad or it can be for God's glory. We see in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel. This is when it says they're gathered together, they're unified, and they're not just unified in, in location, but they're unified in language and vocabulary. That means their ability to express ideas was perfectly unified. And in that, because they did not want to align themselves with the living God, they decided self over God. So they said, we need to, as we are unified, we need to build a tower to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. So that we won't be scattered. And basically, they're trying to trust and have confidence in themselves. They're, they're seeking a hope or a goal that has them in mind. And they are absolutely only in love with themselves. Faith, hope, and love is in themselves. And God, in a both gracious and judgmental act, takes them, confuses their languages, and spreads them out. Because he says there's no end to the evil they can accomplish if they remain unified like this. There's power in unity. It's great power. But then you, later, you find just a powerful and beautiful display of God's overarching story and plan at the day of Pentecost. Because what was undone in the unity of the people at Babel was restored in the day of Pentecost as they're gathered together in one location, the upper room. They're gathered together and they're praying together. They're crying out to God. Prayer is an act of faith and humility at the same time. It's crying out saying, I believe that you hear me and can do something about this and I know that I can't. So in faith and humility, they, they are praying together to God and his spirit descends, fills that place and fills them and they begin to speak, although many nations, it says all the nations of the earth were gathered, they were speaking and everyone was hearing in their own native language the powerful and mighty works of God. And know what happened? 
From that point, as Jesus promised, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And thousands upon thousands from that unified group, animated by the Spirit of God, aligned with the God of the universe, thousands and thousands and thousands until we arrive here today and we are recipients of that unified community. Because God chooses to do his work in this world through this community. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the worship team to come up and I want us to pray. I want us to think about that time in which in this passage in John 17, I always get I just get amazed that he prayed for me. He said, I pray for those that would believe in me through their words. And that's me. I remember the moment that I realized as the Spirit of God opened my eyes to who Jesus is and that Jesus knew my name. I wasn't this just kind of random person in the crowd, but he knew my name. And how humbling and how filling and how much joy I experienced when I came to know, love, and enjoy God. And that my life means that I'm called to do that. And that doesn't stop and it doesn't change just because certain restrictions are placed on me. Just because I might have to wear a mask when I go to HEB. Just because I can't meet in the size of groups that I'm accustomed to or would like to. No government can limit the call on my life. We are called and designed to know, love, and enjoy God as a community. And as we do that, the watching world will go, what is up with them? This Jesus must be real because there's not, no one can explain the diversity of the people, the background, the way that they get along and, and bear with one another in love. And they maintain this, this peace. And they're not divided. That shows a watching world that he's real because that's unnatural in the world we live in. It is broken. And when we exercise, animated by the Spirit of God, a watching world sees that he can fix it. And only he can. So let's praise him this morning. Amen.